This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. And good morning, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and we have two live hours every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, where we talk about all kinds of things happening in the world of sports. And of course, this is a participatory show, which means you, the caller, we want to have you call in, tell us what caught your eye in sports, tell us what kind of statistics questions you might have, and how do you do that? Well, it's very simple. Call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer at any time during the week, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, you can always tweet stuff at us at WMoneyBall. And, of course, I'm joined this morning by my co-host and friend, Professor Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. Adi, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. I biked in in this uh, Arctic weather we're having this April. Uh, it seems warmer than it's been, at least, <laughs> at least there. 36 degrees. So, uh, obviously, for those people that have listened to us, on Wharton Moneyball. We have uh, two guests today on the show. Actually, uh, since Adi and I are here, it's not surprising. It's It's baseball. baseball. It's baseball. And so at 8.30 today, we have our returning guest, our longtime returning guest, Rick Peterson. We'll do our call to the bullpen segment. And then at 9 o'clock, we have uh, Ned Coletti, former uh, GM of the Dodgers. And we'll be talking about all kinds of stuff, about building a team, the use of analytics in building a team. So lots of baseball today. And of course, in the first half hour and the last half hour, we always do what caught our eye in sports. So, Adi, I'll start with you. Um, what caught your eye in sports over the last week? There's a lot going on. You know, uh, before I answer that, I always wonder, when you say that, when you ask that question, what do you mean? The way I prepare for sports is generally by reading, but for the show, that is, by reading all, uh, articles I can find. Uh, and not so much uh, by actually watching the games, but this is a season where I'm, I'm actually quite interested. It's baseball season, and the, the uh, Sixers are in the, the playoffs, the basketball playoffs, and that's interested me, um, particularly because there's an analytics story. So I probably would say um, that what caught my eye this 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 uh, this week is basketball and baseball in particular. I watched almost the entire uh, Sixers game game from two June, game two yes not game one uh, but game two and so that that was very interesting to me because there's been a lot written about. What has happened with the Sixers? They went from two years ago, I think, what did they win? Ten, ten games. Ten games yep. to actually being one of the top teams in the league. And, and that 52 transition... 52 games this it, year. It seems incredible. And people are writing a lot of stuff. And, and so one of the things that, that... There was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about a, a mythical four-point line. I don't know if you saw the article... And, and, I not only saw the says. article, but I heard it even referenced on the air where they were saying that the Sixers practice with a four-point line right. shooting threes. So what that means is, for our listeners, is that there isn't a four-point line, so let's make that clear. Uh, 23 feet is the three-point line, and if you uh, move Well, back, let's be clear. It's actually it, a little less than that clo- at the sides. At the right? sides, yeah. but yes, because it's not a perfect mm-hmm. arc that way, but yes, right. 23 so, feet down to 21 feet, nine or something like that. Right. But uh, And so then imagine moving it back about five feet to 28 to 28 feet, and that's what they call the mythical um, four. Uh, I mean, four-point line. And what did that? What that does? And I actually did a little calculation. Is it adds an enormous amount of square footage for the defense to cover? Because if you move back just a few feet, because of the square relationship between surface area and 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 radius so of a circle. So everybody may remember the area of a circle <laughs> is pi r squared. So if you go from a circle, let's say of radius six. 
which would be, of course, 36 feet, to one of radius 8, just as an example. You go up to 64 feet. So, so it's, it's, it goes up much, much rapidly than the, the, few, the few extra feet that you Absolutely. step back. So now, because the basketball court is only 50 feet wide, you, you can't just, you don't get the full benefit of moving back five feet. But I actually did the calculation. You want to guess the squ- extra square footage? Do you have any uh, sense of how much more it is? Oh, well, let's see. Let's say it were a full circle. So now, now this is what Adi's going to do. With, I like this. It's kind of like, I'll call it envelope math. Yep. So let's say you moved it back five feet. And let's say you move the radius back five feet, so you would go from like twenty one. So you go from twenty three to twenty three to twenty eight. Yep. So that's about five hundred to maybe eight hundred. So three hundred half of that. I'm going to say three hundred extra square feet. It's exactly right. You're kidding me. No, you're right on the, right on target. And it's it's funny because you made a couple of mistakes but they canceled each other out. So you actually underestimated the growth, but you you didn't you, you just you balanced it out because of the edges you don't get anything out of it because okay, you're, so you're just saying twenty three squared, twenty eight squared, I underestimated that a little bit. Yep. I took half of that, of and course, that's, it's and that, only because the it. basket is sitting right. there. You don't get you don't have to worry about the other half. No. So that's what uh, that, that's what happened. Uh, so it actually is 300 square feet, which is enormous, actually a hu- huge space. So when I was watching the game, I wanted to see where, what I could see with this. And this, be, this really is the transition in basketball that people have described over the years, where it used to be you drive to the basket, and there would be this crowding going on around the player doing right. the driving. And, and it's great to see that there are obviously great players who can do this. But when you stay back at the perimeter, it's just very hard to defend because there's so much space. Right. And, and allowing yourself to move further back, even past 23, even deeper towards 28, it, the space grows faster than the extra, extra distance backwards that you're moving. And you could make an argument. It's given the, you know, right now with Joel Embiid out, although we hope he's coming back soon, let's think about who the best player in the Sixers is. It's Ben Simmons, who can't shoot, can't shoot. but he can drive. And with four perimeter shooters out on the wings... Ben Simmons is essentially one-on-one going down the That's lane. Right. And so, matter of fact, you've this is something is I give credit to the Sixers organization and Brett Brown. If you're going to have a player like Ben Simmons, you have to open up the lane and give him space because he can't shoot otherwise. So it actually fits well with their talent. So I watched the game. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you watched uh, game I, two as well. I did. And I turned it on um, you know, early in the game, and they were down almost the entirety of the game. But the very last four or five minutes, they came back to within, within two. two. And then they just sort of didn't do it. I was sort of disappointed as a, as a, as a fan that they, that didn't happen. Um, what were your feelings? What were your thoughts about the game? So I actually... I actually uh, was paying close attention to the halftime show of that game. And that's because one of the analysts on, I think it was TNT the game was on, was uh, Kenny Smith. And he said something very interesting to me. And I've now figured out, I hate to give this away because, you know, I'm a Sixer fan, but I now know how to stop a team like the Sixers. And I've thought about it from an analytics perspective on how to do it. So how do the Sixers score most of their points? They score it by either driving and kicking out or passing the ball effectively around the perimeter so what do you do? You stop the ability to do that. Now, you do it in one of two ways. And Kenny Smith talked about one of the two. One is you pressure the passing lane. So what Miami was doing, if you notice, was they were, the end. Yeah. Yeah, they were actually playing. Forget about pressuring the shooter. They were pressuring the passer. So number one, this 28 feet that you're talking about, the Sixers couldn't as effectively even pass the ball around the perimeter. The second thing, which I don't understand why every NBA team doesn't do this, if you pressure the guy bringing the ball up the court so it takes him 10 seconds instead of six, well, that's four less seconds you have to pass the ball around the perimeter. So the most effective form of defense against a three-point shot is to pressure the guy coming up the court, not because you're going to steal the ball, 
because you're going to eat up to the 24-second yeah, so th- clock. That's what I, that's what I noticed in, in the fact, game. In fact, I noticed they, they had a, a, a shot uh, clock violation at a cr- crucial they many. moment. And this was And they always seemed to be rushed. They always seemed to be rushed, and they always seemed to be like one pass away from having somebody open, but they didn't have the time, the time or yeah. the angle to do it because guys who were passing the ball were being pressured. That's what I noticed. So it's interesting because in basketball, one of our themes has been that it almost seems incredibly predictable, at least absolutely almost to the end and with almost with certainty in that first round. So I actually tried to listen to what some of the experts were saying. One of the, one, I've, I've been tuning into some podcasts about uh, sports analytics to see what some of uh, the community is, is talking about. And there seemed to be some question mark that, that these top teams, the top four in each league, might actually lose in the first round. I don't think in the, the top two teams in the West are going to lose. What's, and, what's interesting here is if you actually look at the results so far. But that was may, it. Yeah, maybe the odds have gone the way you would think. Yeah. So the Sixers are the three, mm-hmm. right? The Heat are the six. It's 1-1. One, one. Let's take a look at the 4-5 in the East. The Cavs are four. The Pacers are five. The Pacers are up 1-0. Yeah. Let's take a look at the West. The 3-6 is Portland against uh, the Trailblazers. The 6 seed, the Pelicans, are up 2-0. The 4-5 in the West is the Thunder and the Jazz, but the first game was extraordinarily competitive. So, you know what? It might be that, I that's what you're pointing out, Adi, there's kind of two tiers. The first two teams are just, it might turn, no, no, but I, my point was, we may be underestimating the separation between the Raptors and Celtics, who are the top two teams in the East, and maybe the rest of the teams. Like yeah. maybe there is more of a gap than the regular season would suggest. And let me just say, the plus-minus in scoring, and if when the Celtics weren't injured, at least there was a marked gap between their, you know, if you'd like, uh, point differential. Matter of fact, Toronto was number two in the NBA this year, which they don't get much credit for. No, they don't. Um, because Toronto is, I listened to an expert talk at, at length about why he thought Toronto uh, Toronto to lose was a great pick. <laughs> so again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner, and we're here on Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. And you can join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We're here every well, live every Wednesday morning, eight to ten a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. We're also have a uh, we're up on iTunes and SoundCloud, so you can listen to us there. And of course, you can always email us at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Yeah, so no, I agree. I I was. Interested in the tactics taken by the Heat and the adjustments that they made. Now, of course, and this leads to my next question. I had, you know, I had a question for you. It's, it's going to. Unfortunately, I apologize. It's going to be a momentum-related question. Momentum, it is. So you have two options in the NBA playoffs, or in any playoffs. It could be baseball, MLB. It doesn't matter, really, or hockey. You're one-one. Does it matter whether you've gone win-loss or loss-win? Well, you know what my feeling would be about that. I would, I would, I would, my, my gut would say, no, it doesn't matter. Um, the momentumites would argue that it would be much better to go loss win than win loss. Okay. So let me come up with three arguments. So, and so now we're statistics show as well. So let me come up with three arguments that support loss win. And I couldn't think of any particular argument that supported win-loss. It doesn't mean there's a difference, but let me give you the arguments for loss-win. Well, loss I wouldn't win. say that, that, that one is better. I would essentially say that the two are no, the no, same. No, no, I know that. I'm just trying to say, I can. I mean, as statisticians, mathematicians, we try to think of hypotheses and theories. And so here are the theories that I could imagine supporting why loss-win might be better. And by the way, I think if we both agree to the following, if there is an effect, it's tiny. Yes. It's tiny. Okay, so one argument for loss-win is... 
Momentum. So what does that mean? It means the probability of, just for our listeners, it means that the probability of win, given win, is higher than the probability of win, given loss. So that's one possibility, is that there's this momentum. You've won, all of a sudden it could happen. Alternative, we can call it hotness. You're, yeah, the team, Same thing. the team got hot. Another possibility could be, it's not momentum, but it's non-stationary. And what I mean, let me give you an example from my, one of the first papers I ever wrote at ETS. It turns out in educational tests, people, there are a group of people that start out a test slowly. It turns out you can find it in the data. If you'd like, there's one theta, your ability, in the first, like, five to ten items. And then some people just kind of warm up to the test. They're not used to taking standardized tests. They're not used to taking tests on computers. Maybe that's what happens in basketball. Maybe it takes time for one team to get in a series and figure out the other team. So that could, non-stationarity could be another possibility. Another possibility is... That's actually a good... I think that if I were to believe in anything, it would be that one. That somehow you're learning about the team. And basketball is a game where I do think there's a lot of division between the, the, the teams. In other words, the skill level differences dominate the, the various chance-oriented things that, that, that out determine outcomes of games. But then the question and, is, right, but the question is, how much value do you put in, maybe it's coaching. Maybe this is a measure of coaching, which is Eric Spolstra. By the way, people always forget, I know he had LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. The guy's won two NBA titles. Let's not make it seem like this guy hasn't been a coach for a long time. He's a, a highly successful coach. Maybe he said, look, we have to take a different strategy. Well, they were blown out in that first game. And they were blown out. But the style of play, if you notice, it didn't even matter. I did actually, I, obviously I was with you. I was hoping the Sixers were going to win the game. I actually didn't matter to me from a perspective of, I can see this is going to be a long series now. Because what Miami is going to do is they're going to do what they did in this game. Right. Pressure the ball coming up the court, make the shot clock the enemy of the Sixers who want to pass the ball four or five times around to get the open three-point shooter, and they're going to pressure the passing lane. Even if they get beaten to the hoop, the hope is, you know, three is better than two. Right, but three is better than two, but three at 40% is better than, than two at 50%, but two at 60% is better than three at 40%. Well, that was, so that was the next question I was going to ask you. you so, I, I may have been a little quick with that, but no, I, no, hope, no. I hope that was, uh, our listeners understood that. Well, yeah, if you take, look, if you take 1.5, sorry, if you take three times 40%, your average expected points is 1.2. If you take two at 50%, your average expected points is one. And that's typically what and, and about if, where uh, we the are. NBA really figured that out, that three is at 40 was better than two at a half. And because that's actually the historical rate. I mean, actually, it's not historical. No, it's, it's not actually, historical at all. But it used to be no one believed you could shoot three points at 40%. That's correct. why they were really never used in the, in the, for such a long time. It was never understood that you could actually do that. Yeah, I've always oh, actually, one of the things that always amuses me on the air, and you can obviously do the quick math, they're like, well, this guy's a good as a decent three-point shooter, he only shoots 37%. I'm thinking, 37? You know, if you just take one and a half times 37, you're at 55.5%. So you're equivalent, your effect, I forget what they call it now, it's your effective, effective uh, scoring. scoring rate. Yeah. You'd have to shoot 55% from two. There's a handful of guys in the NBA that shoot 55% from two. So, by the way, I'd love to hear from our listeners uh, here on Wharton Moneyball, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Do you think there's any difference between one loss versus loss win? But let me ask you another question. Let's imagine now Game 3 is happening. I think it's tomorrow night. Matter of fact, I know it's tomorrow night between the Sixers and the Heat. It's in Miami. How worried are you as a Sixer fan if the Heat win Game 3? Not just that they're up 2-1. 
But now it's gone loss, win, win. So is it going to be, what's the schedule in terms of location? It's fortunately, I think this is good for the Sixers. Is it's it 2-3-2? Two, 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 no. Okay. It's 2-2-1-1-1. Two, two, one, one, one. So huh. just for our fans, that means two at the Sixers, which has already happened, two at the Heat, one back at the Sixers, one back at the Heat, one back at the Sixers. But here's the other thing you start doing the math on when you start saying is, so what are the odds that the Sixers win this series in five now? Now, what would that take? It would take us, obviously, to win both games in Miami and to win game five here. You say, eh, yeah. not so likely. Now you start to say, what's the chances we win in six? That's 1-1. One, one. All right, well, now you're going to win game six in Miami. You start to say, eh, there is, there not is so been clear. Historically, so now you're saying, but now you're saying all of a sudden this is a seven-game right, series. Seven series, which there are disproportionate, disproportionately large numbers of in exactly. basketball. Very, dis- it's really an, an oddity. It doesn't really make sense mathematically why there's so many seven-game series in basketball. Well, I think I, I, you can do the math or give me the probabilistic argument for this, maybe better than I can. I think the team that's up, obviously, to get to a seven-game series. One of the teams at some point had to be up 3-2. I think winning game six on the opposing team's court, if you had it 2-3-2, there'd be a lot less game sevens. But 2-2-1-1-1 means game six. And let's imagine, remember, which team has had the three at home? The team that's typically up 3-2. So most teams go on the road up 3-2. It's hard to win game six on the road. Even though your theory, the better team, because you're up 3-2. Yep. I was actually interested in, in trying to observe what kind of effect, the, why there is a home field advantage. And one of the, there's the two standard arguments, the, the, the one that the mathematicians or statisticians talk about are, are um, referee biases, which are actually in favor of the home team. Yep. I didn't really see any of that. In the game yesterday, the only thing I would the only thing I would and I agree with that. Matter of fact, the only thing I would no fact I would say the, maybe the opposite. I said they let the game at least in the Sixer game be more physical than they had been, yeah. and in some sense that favors the Heat, the Heat. who want to slow the game down, clutch and grab, not allow shooters to get open. So I agree with you. I don't. Uh, I but didn't I did notice. I did notice that the crowd was and well, oh, the Fargo Center was was a hundred percent behind the Sixers, and that's got to be exhilarating for the home so team. So what's the other one? You said so those are the two. two. The, the, oh, cra- oh, the, the crowd. It has to be the crowd. I mean, I mean, because a basketball court is 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 a fixed entity; it can't favor one player team over the other. So, I, it's either the crowd affects the referees so or the crowd affects the players. What's interesting is if you ask most fans, not statisticians, what the effect is. They maybe it's some combination of number two, which is role players play better at home. Interesting. You know, that's no, no. I'm saying you yeah. ask the average fan; they'll say, "I'll make this up." You know, on the Sixers, with I don't know that he's a role player, but you know, the Dario Sarichs, the Robert Covingtons, the T.J. McConnells, that these guys that aren't stars, like they play better at the home court. Now, you could argue that's because the fans are behind them, everything else. Yeah. But that's that's a typical way. Let me ask you another question. It relates from the game too. Was this purely mean reversion, or was it just a bad night? Because it's hard to unconfound the two. So in Game One, and I'm, I maybe our producer. Or Matt Dats can type me the actual numbers, but the Sixers were roughly, let's call it, sixteen for twenty-five from threes in Game One, which is a, a little on the high side. It's a little <laughs> bit. It's way over sixty percent. Yeah. And in Game Two, there was something like, and I may be roughly off, like seven for thirty-six. So which under twenty amazingly on the low side. So no, no. But here's my question to you. I know you'd enjoy this mental math. On average, that's forty percent. That's about right. They were 60% and then 20%. But does the amount of variation surprise you? Does it surprise you that, look, let me ask you a different way. Let's imagine I flipped 60, sorry, yeah. I flipped 35 coins, sorry, 25 coins in one game and 36 in another, and the true P was 
This is, by the way, I'm just translating for all our listeners out here the math question I'm asking Adi. If I'm flipping 0.4 coins, how, do you think it would be natural? For, I mean, you can do the square root. You're doing the calculation in your head. You're trying to do the calculation in your head. Is it that strange that we would see a 60 and a 20? Uh, no, it's not. There's enough standard uh, standard deviation in a binomial, and these are what we, the actual are- name of the random variable that we're, we're, we're studying, um, to allow a huge swing of up to 60% after with 35 shots or 25 shots in the first game and a, and a huge swing in the other direction down to 20% on the other side. There's too much variation in, and too few shots to, to say See, that that's not... because most people not, would say... No. I mean, They were ask, hot once and they yeah, were cold exactly. a second. That's what they would that's, say. That's the part. No. Most people would say how... you know this Or another part, thing you could question would be they're not independent trials. So maybe, and that's the hot-cold argument, the Sixers got hot... In game one, and there, and this is what arguments of people that you know test streaks and hot streaks say they got hot in game one. You know the probability of make given they've just made one is higher. And you know what? In game two, they started missing, and you kind of I don't know how you felt during the game, but when they were taking threes, you kind of knew they were going to miss. Knew, you knew they were going to miss. Well, that suggests it suggests. But here's what I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback of something you said earlier. I think that the strategy that the Heat was using to pressure them. Uh, and really made them feel that they were rushed constantly. And that's not the that's not something, it's not that they're going cold. I think they're taking shots under different circumstances. And this is what a lot of the, mo- the modern technologies allowed. Could you talk to, to our listeners a little bit about, like, so what would, n- not just new stats, but new technology, like if you just looked at a, let's call it a, uh, uh, not a videotape, but a videotape, like a digital recording of the game, and you could, uh, translate where all the players were. Yes, so this is actually what being would, done. Yeah. I mean, so what what we we've had on our show earlier, uh, in, individuals who have built or companies that have built technology have used technology to to kind of look at the position of the player as he shoots. So the easy thing to measure is how far the, the defender is. But even if there's a defender relatively close, that doesn't necessarily matter. It's it's the actual position of the shooter as they as they as he takes the shot. And it turns out that you can actually try to look at the awkwardness, measure the awkwardness of the shooter and their position. And they ha- they know what a, a very comfortable um, lined up shot should be, and it turns out you might expect this that when you're when you're really aligned and have space and have the time to make a shot, the percentages are much higher. Oh, by the way, dude, I don't happen to know this. Maybe you know this. Maybe one of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball knows this. Um, let's say the three point line is roughly twenty three feet, and let's say a great shooter, let's say the average shooter in the NBA shoots thirty five percent from twenty three feet. I don't know the answer, so I'm asking you. At 24 feet, what's the percentage? At 25 feet? Because I also had the sense that the Sixers were taking 24 and 25-foot threes as opposed to 23-foot threes. And I've got to imagine, if it let's put it this way, and this gets back to actually our 60% versus 20%. Let's imagine, because of where they took them, they're not flipping .4 coins, but they're flipping one-third coins. And everyone's like, oh, what's the difference? 40% one-third? Oh no 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 no! That's I mean it's a big difference in the term of trying to rationalize twenty percent. A third is twenty percent doesn't do it. You you shouldn't be taking three points if your twenty if your success rate is twenty percent. Right, but I'm just saying I would imagine would it? Let me say even though maybe neither of us might have the data right now, would it shock you that by extending where you're shooting from by a foot or a foot and a half, the percentage could degrade five percent? Absolutely, it doesn't shock me at all. In fact, I think it's a little bit more. 
Right. Well, that could be so an, an interesting data point. It would be great to have. And I'm sure this shot tracking was done on the game yeah. was what was the average distance of the three point shots the Sixers took in game two? Yeah. For, and it would be wonderful how much of the variation just that would explain of 20 percent versus. 60%. I bet it has some, some effect, but I, I would think it's smaller than than that enormous difference. It's not 60 to, to 20 doesn't happen just by taking a step back. It Did comes it, by missing shots. Anything else caught your eye? I mean, have well, you watched any of the Warriors I, Spurs? Have you watched any of that? I haven't watched them. Of course, it does interest me. I mean, these are kind of playing out more or less the way we expected them to play out. I think there hasn't been. I mean, there's been some great competition, but but I've been interested more in the home team. And also because of their, their ridiculous, uh, interesting, ridiculously interesting story of going from 10, 10 wins in a season two years ago to... Uh, a essentially a championship run this season, and actually the role of the, of the the strategy or what they call the process here in Philadelphia, they talked about how they would tank for all these years and assemble a team, and I think that's incredibly hard to do. Um, and that's uh, when Sam Hinkie left. I think there was a general sense that this is on paper a good idea, but actually in execution almost impossible. And here we are two years later, or a year later, or however long it's been, Right, and there they are. And so that's been the story for me. Well, let's talk first. Let's talk to us a second. I have watched about, other sports this week. Not, you have or have not? Oh, yeah, I have. Oh, well, we're yeah. going to get to baseball. We know <laughs> baseball, you. I know, but I I also, there's one other sport that doesn't come around much that I actually focused a little bit on this, 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 this week. The marathon? The marathon. Yeah, so let's get to that in just one second. But before, I just want to get to touch uh, trusting the process just one second. What's, what you're pointing out is is something really important, is that a lot of people say, I get what the Sixers did, they tanked this and that, but let's remember, that still then requires you to draft the right players, huh. of which there's tremendous uncertainty That's right. about. Like, I, If you had asked most people, would Ben Simmons be as great as he is, as quick as he is, most people would have said, probably not. Right. Joel Embiid, I'm pretty sure, Matt will correct me here, he was the third pick in the draft? Yes. Matt's nodding, yes. He was not the first pick in the draft, so other people could have taken somebody ahead of Joel Embiid. We drafted Dario Saric as well. Um, And so you're right, I remember Embiid was injured. That's why he may have slipped in the draft when he was drafted. But also remember, we've had some draft. We also drafted uh, Okafor which oh, yes. didn't turn out to be that well. So we also had, you know, we'll, the jury's out on Markel Fultz. By the way, I don't know if it pains you, but Boston won last night. And Jalen Brown, let's remember, this is the guy that we could have taken at right. number three, but we switched spots with the Celtics. and gave, We gave up the number three pick in this year's draft, last year's draft, and our first rounder that we had gotten through a trade to move up to number one. Markel Fultz, you know, has been injured, played a little bit. Jalen Brown scored 30 last night for the Celtics. So, uh, Jason Tatum. Sorry, Jason Tatum. The actual, uh, which one of them scored 30 last night, Matt? I think it was Brown scored 30 last night. So, you're right. So, maybe I'm not—I shouldn't be as upset. Jason Tatum—Jalen uh, Brown was a couple years, was drafted maybe a year beforehand. But— there's the uncertainty also. It's Huge not just losing and you get you move on. You know, you look you look historically and you find that the greatest players in basketball history, they most of them are many of them are first are act first picks and they're very close to the top. There are obviously some exceptions, but and it's reasoning kind of backwards. Just because right. the, the great ones are the top, are often are most are usually top picks. It doesn't mean if you turn it around that just because you're getting a top pick, they're going to be great. Well, we have a few minutes left in our first half hour, and again, if our listeners want to call in, please call us at one eight four four. 
Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And so, what what caught your eye about the Boston Marathon? So you mentioned about the marathon. Well, Something caught my eye, but I'm interested in yours first. Okay, so what caught my eye, of course, were the winners. Um, that originally caught my eye because I didn't actually watch the marathon. The nationality of the winners was something extraordinary. So my understanding unusual. is on the men, it was the Japanese side, which was the first time, I think, in 31 years. Yep. And the women, it was American. It's the first time, I think, 33 years. That's right. So that immediately, because the East Africans have essentially dominated the marathon, the Kenyans, Ethiopians, for the last 20 years, uh, at least. And so it was highly unusual to, to see someone not from East Africa or East African descent um, winning the marathon. But you saw what happened, didn't you? Well, I didn't. Uh, so it was freezing weather. Ah. I mean, so that was the All right. that's, that's the the thing that no, was no, unusual. No, 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 not yes. So let's be clear. Actually, I actually did a study on this a couple of year, years ago. Now, if you, let's imagine you had a plot on the x-axis, you had the temperature at the start of the race, mm-hmm. and on the y-axis, you had winning marathon time. What do you think that pattern looks like? So, just for our listeners out there, before Adi gives his prediction. On the x-axis, again, is temperature at the start of the race. So on the left-hand side of the plot, might be 30 degrees, 40 degrees. On the right-hand side of the plot, 80, 90 degrees. So on the x-axis is temperature. On the y-axis is winning marathon time. What do you think that looks like? Well, if I don't have that many data points. I would imagine if it's extraordinarily hot, it's slow. Okay. And that there's probably a peak, and it rises up. On the other hand... Um, Temp- I mean, I, I'm not a runner, but I would imagine temperature, you want temperature to be low to do well. So the, so, the only question is whether it's what's called a J-shape, yeah. which is it starts low and then increases, or it's a U-shape, meaning yeah. I, and it turns out it's a U-shape. That's what I was going to guess. It turns out yeah. there's a U-shape. Extraordinarily cold it's is not terrible. good. Extraordinarily hot. hot is not good. But here's the thing. Maybe this is something you know. The marathon time. Take a guess. So there was a winning marathon time on the women's side. What year would I have to go back to? to get an equally slow marathon time. And you asked about why maybe an American one as opposed to an East African. Everybody was slower. Just do you have a guess? I have a guess. What my, guess is an, my guess is based simply on the fact that Americans haven't won in 30 years. So I'm going to say you had to go back at least 30 years, maybe 35. Uh, keep going. Keep going. 1975. All right. So the last it was 43 years. The 43 last years. time. So, you know, by the way. This is the, one of the slowest marathons in memory. It's one of the slowest. And actually... One of my, uh, well, one of our mutual, co- uh, if you like, colleagues, adjunct colleagues, and closer friend of mine than yours, Howard Weiner, once did a study on this about, in some sense, when you break a record, like how much does it extend the record? And he also does comparisons. One of the things he always liked to do was comparison among men's and women's sports. Like, example would be let's take the 100 meter breaststroke for women's. The best 100-meter breaststroke women's person today is the best man of what year? Yeah. And he actually, it's an equ- it's an interesting way to calibrate how when one breaks a record, like how big a record break is it? You can obviously compare it to other women's times, but you can also compare it to other sports and say how many years would you have to go back? And so the fact is 43 years of better training, better fitness. Those are probably – We're those back 43 years the women this marathon time would not have won in 1976 the women's marathon yep. time yesterday or this weekend would not have won, would not have won in 19 it would not have won in any year between 1976 and 2000 but no nevertheless it still wasn't uh her time was 230 something 230 yeah 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 it wouldn't have been close to a man's time 
No. Even 35. Even, no. Even 70 years ago. It might be the first time. Probably you yeah. would have to go that far back because men run in the sub 210s, the quick marathons. Right. And certainly, you know, I don't know exactly. Matt will type it out for me what the man's was time was this year. The 215. Yeah. Well, that's also incredibly slow for men. Yeah. I mean, most men, most marathons end uh, much quicker but than why that. Didn't, so my question is. By the way, it was 30 degrees and gale force winds into their face. So why did the Ethiopians and the Kenyans just seem to lose it? No, well, so this is... Is it because they're sort of built to to run in optimum conditions? That's one theory, and that's one theory. Here's another theory, and I'd like to ask you. Maybe, let's imagine we have a distribution of abilities, okay? Do you think it's possible that the weather conditions differentially affect people at the distribution differently? So, for example, I'll make it up. Let's imagine I run the marathon. It doesn't matter to me whether it's 40 degrees or 60 degrees, I'm coming in slow. And you know what? But someone that's t- targeting 207 versus someone that's targeting 210, the 207 person ends up at 212. The 210 person ends up at 212 or 213. So it's a five-minute effect to someone at the heavy well, right I think tail. That's probably is it the, possible? Well, I think that's what's probably happening. The question is why. I mean, so this uh, it's not it's not the woman who won is no slouch. I mean, she's a she's one of the Americans' best marathoners and um and and as a competitive runner, it's not like uh, but it's it's she doesn't usually win or even compete for for the mar- these top marathons. You know, it's interesting, and then and we'll wrap up the first quarter of our show, and then we'll come back and uh, we have uh, uh, Rick Peterson in the next half hour. But one of the things is interesting is you hear two schools of thoughts. Like I'm thinking about golf too. One player will say wind is the great equalizer. And, of course, the other players will say, I really hope it's windy because the better players will play better in the wind. So it's interesting to hear how weather might right. affect it. Well, this has been the first half hour of Morton Moneyball. This is Eric Brado, and I'm here this morning with Adi Weiner. We have three quarters of the show to go, so please join us again right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner, and some combination of myself, Adi Weiner, Cade Massey, and Shane Jensen are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And of course, Adi, given you and I are here, it's baseball season. Baseball season's in full flight, and on Wharton Moneyball, when it's baseball season, that means for the first time this season, it it's is. our time for our call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's call to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. So... We obviously would like to welcome back for the first time this season to our Call to the Bullpen segment, Rick Peterson. And Rick, this is Eric Brado, and I'm here with Adi Weiner. And for those listeners that are new to Wharton Moneyball, Rick is a former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. And he's now a sought-after motivational speaker and co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. So, Rick, this is Eric and Adi. Welcome back to the show. 
Hey, how you guys been doing, man? How was your off season? Our off season. <laughs> well, <laughs> as you know, um, we've got two diehard Yankee fans yeah. in here. Thank, thankfully, Shane, the Red Sox lover, is not here He's today. Not here. We can stand and, it and, in here, and you know. So, but either way, um, first we we have lots and lots of questions for you. But let's let's just start with the most basic for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, which is it's early on in the season. Obviously, you've spent probably as much time training pitchers to get ready for the season as you have coaching them during the season. Can you tell us a little bit? about what the process is like you know we're 15 games roughly into the season now like tell us how pitchers got ready from pitchers and catchers report in february to actually roll that back Am I, I mean do, do they start in the off season yeah so how do you get p- players and pitchers especially ready for the grind of the season well, well to, to really oversimplify it i mean everybody leaves at the end of the season and the guys that you acquire and, and, and once you do acquire them, if you get them early on in the off season, you know you send out a throwing program. You talk to them. You know you 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 dive into the sabermetrics of, of the pitchers and you take a look at their strengths, their spin rates, you know their their pass records thrown down the line. You know how they pitch starters on four days rest, how they pitch on five days rest. You know relievers, how they bounce back with no rest, how they pitch on back to back days, how they pitch on one day rest. You know so on down the line. So so you dive in to find out. If, if a guy has a track record in the big leagues, like how does he? What is his routine that that allows him to be best? And then you take a look at the incremental improvements that you can make. And then as you come into spring training, it's really all about just making sure that you're ready and healthy for opening day. You know, so, it's, it's not about being competitive. It's about getting their delivery down, their routines down, their workout routines down, so that when opening day starts, you know you're really ready to go. And what's really unique about this year. It is because of the the weather has been so extreme, and and I think they're going to have to really look at if they're going to add extra days off into the season as they did this year, which I think is a great idea. And, and but because of that, you start the season earlier. I think they're going to have to be really more mindful about making sure that that more of these games are are played in in warmer weather because as you see more indoors, Midwest, yeah. Yeah, or indoors, because as you see through the Midwest or or at the West Coast and down south, obviously. But you know, I mean, when you're looking at snow outs and and you're watching games being played in snow, baseball is not made to be played in snow. <laughs> so, Rick, let me ask you two follow up questions. It actually, Rick, uh, just before we took the break for the first half hour, Adi and I were talking about the Boston Marathon and the effect the weather had there. So, let me ask you a question: What effect does rain and or cold condition have on pitchers? Um, I know people have said it affects the ability to grip the ball, which I assume would therefore have an ability to maybe spin the ball. It certainly affects the, the flight of the ball. Cold yes. weather cuts back on home runs. Yeah, so how good? that's another good point. So how did you think about pitchers pitching under poor conditions? And do you, and how much differential is there across whether good pitchers in bad weather, bad pitchers in bad weather? How did you think about that? You know, I, that's something that we really never track statistically as you say that. Um, I mean, you, you look at how guys pitch in day, day games, how they pitch in night games, you know, how they pitch on the road, how they pitch at home. Um, I don't think we've ever looked at sabermetrics and, and looked at – I don't think every, everybody's ever really recorded temperature, um, and, and especially, you know, humidity and so on down the line. You know, but, but I think more than anything else, it, it's the grip, just as you mentioned earlier. I mean, that's what, that's what guys really struggle with. But there's all kinds of different things that you can use um, that – are probably not in the rule book legal, but they're totally, you know, understood that in the in the game, um, you know, kind of like the code of the game, like you want the pitcher to be able to grip the So what, do you, what is it? So what do they do that's not legal or not code book legal? 
Well, for example, like like if you take sunscreen, sunscreen when you get a little bit of sweat, sunscreen can get very very tacky. Mm-hmm. And so if you put sunscreen on your arms and you start to sweat, I mean, one of the things that you typically will do is is you you'll coat your body before you before you start to get dressed with, with like some type of like really high end oil, because once you put oil on your body, all over your body, you know when you start to sweat, the, the oil keeps the heat in. You know, so, so you feel like you know you're not really releasing heat as you start to sweat. Um, you know, but but after that, the pitcher really has the advantage more than anybody else on the field because he's the only one that's really warm. He's he's the warmest of anybody because he's the one moving the most. You know, obviously. You know, but but wind affected, as you mentioned. You know, Adi. You know, temperature is going to affect. Well, that's true. Cold yeah. weather can affect the distance with it without question. So let me ask you another right. related question. Mm-hmm. Is it possible for a pitcher? We were just talking about. I just gave an example of if you look at marathon times versus temperature, it's a U shape, meaning there's an optimal interior temperature. Let me mm-hmm. ask you a question about training for spring training and getting ready the season. Can a pitcher overtrain? Can a pitcher actually train too much so that it's, and I don't mean just possibly dead arm because they've actually thrown too much, but can someone actually peak too soon? Did you ever worry about someone kind of overtraining in the offseason or no, you'll take as much training as someone will do? Well, it's, it's, it's not really overtraining. It's the right kind of training, you know, just making sure that you're training baseball specific. And now, you know, now with nutrition and, you know, all the, all the, you know, different things that we have, you know, from a science standpoint, um, you know, pitchers come in in spring training, like really ready to go. I mean, nobody comes into spring training getting in shape. Everybody comes in great physical shape. That used to be you the know. case. I mean, if you read biographies of old timers, mm-hmm. yes. they would, they'd have jobs all year <laughs> mm-hmm. and they would show up in, in March or end of February and they'd have to get into shape. But it, it's been how many years since that, since that, uh, that state of affairs has disappeared? Oh God, thirty, forty years. Yeah. I mean, in, in my, I mean, in my time, you know, everybody that comes to spring training, you know, now is like, you know, it's phenomenal physical shape, and you know, and and with the money that can be made with these long term contracts, you know, believe me, I mean, nothing's left on the table, you can, know, for 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 many of these athletes. Speaking means, speaking but, of physical conditioning, one of the things um, that that we've been talking about on our show for for several years, and you've been part of this conversation, is what is responsible for the uptick in in power in home runs. And if you start to apportion it out into all the different possibilities, the seam heights, the resilience of the ball, um, that's, those are ball-related phenomenons, the, the trajectory of the swing to, to get more flight in the ball. One of the things that people don't talk about, and maybe they should, is the conditioning of the batters. And, and the, because the pitchers are throwing faster, but the batters got to be in much stronger than they used to. Can you reflect a little bit on the, the, the strength training of the hitters vis-a-vis, say, 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Well, I think everybody's so, so conscious of, of exit speed, and, and it's not so much about strength training as much as speed training, you know, because it's really about how fast you rotate. And, and it's the same thing that you're seeing in golf. I mean, golfers are hitting balls further than they've ever even thought about hitting balls before. And, and, and I think what it comes down to is the fact that, and you look at the training in golf as well, and it's really a different kind of training. You're not seeing these big, you know, these big, bulky, you know, type of bodies anymore. You're, you're seeing very lean and, and very small and very fast guys, you know, without question. Even look at the guys, you know, the guys who are big in stature like Stanton and Judge, I mean, these guys are in phenomenal physical condition. These are not big, bulky, strappy, you know, like slow-moving type guys. Jim Tomei type, maybe? (laughs) Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah, like like yeah, like a Tommy type, or, or or if you go back to you know Conseco and you know like these right. more like mu- muscle built type guys. And I don't want to get into the whole you know PED errors and, and whatnot, but but you're you're looking at guys being much more much more mindful, not only of athletic training, but the visual the visual training as well. And and there's visual training out there right now that is just off the charts. You know where you can actually. You know, you actually can train uh, uh, and, and do some testing, you know, on visual acuity and 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 um, what do I say, um, you know, plasticity of the brain and how you can process speed and 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 get a predictability that you know you you may only be able, a hitter like a high school hitter, for example, last year in a draft went through some of this visual training, and he was going to be one of the top draft picks in the in the, in the country. But to come to find out after visual training, he only can really recognize 88 miles an hour. He's a great high school player, but but he's not going to recognize. Wait, that. Rick, he's, I just want to be clear on this. This is this is a uh, breaking news moment here on Morton Moneyball. You're just I just want to make sure I'm clear on what you're saying here. You're saying there was a player who was rated, let's say, by scouts, his performance, etc., as a top player. But you're saying there was an actual change in the person's draft order or perception of the player based on visual data that was taken on the player? Right, on neuroplasticity, right. You know, there, there's, there's training, you know, that, that, that you can go through, you know, to, to measure, you know, not only your peripheral vision, but also measure how fast your, how fast your brain Wait, processes so, speed. So you're, I'm hearing two things. You're saying you can train it or you can measure it. So you can what measure I, it and train it. You can measure it and train it. So do they give up on this guy because he's not good enough, or do they say let's train him up so he can handle a 95-mile-per-hour festival? No, he, he initially dropped in a draft, you know, once people recognized that, you know, because people aren't sure this is all like, you know, relatively new, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in the training metrics, you know, but and so he did drop in a draft. But, but the issue is, yes, he can be trained to, to visually, you know, there, there's a limit of how, of how much you can train, but, but there is a trainability of it. And, and once he started training, he's, his visual acuity, his visual processing, how fast is his brain processes speed, you know, went up. What does this training look like? Do you have, have you seen these devices or tools or? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like a series of lights. There's, there's a series of lights that are presented in front of you and, and, and on, on, you know, like if you could picture like a little bit larger than the size of a baseball. So if you picture like, let's say there was like 10 different lights on, on, on the size of a baseball and they would be circles, squares, uh, triangles, and, and let's say you know there's five there's five or six different lights in front of you, two in front of your face, two further out, two above you, and these lights flash, and, and let's say all the triangles are orange, and the one that's up in the left hand corner, the, the, the tri- one triangle is green. It's the only one that's different. How quickly can you recognize that, for example? I and see. how quickly you can recognize that and how fast your brain can process, you know, has a predictability of how much you can recognize speed. You know, the one person um, who's been doing this own, his own personal training, he actually bought the system, his own system years ago, is Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady sees things that other people just hmm. don't see. That's interesting. And he, and he, and he sees them so, so quickly. You know, so, I mean, we're, we're just learning. I mean, the, the breakthrough of where um, some things I've been involved with in, in this past year and a half as far as technology is concerned and, and as it relates to training, 
and biomechanics and visual processing and neuroplasticity. It, it's off the charts. It really is. And, and, and this is going to be something I think everybody's looking for the cutting edge w- w- without, without question. And these are things that are going to allow players to, you know, process information and be able to, you know, max out. And, 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 it, and it would have the same benefit for a pitcher. You know, so, because as, as the pitcher is processing information, you know, the quicker that you can process it, the faster you can process it, and the faster you can see certain things, you know, the, the quicker that you can make adjustments. So this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brother. I'm here with my co-host, Audie Weiner. We're talking to our Call to the Bullpen segment guest, Rick Peterson, former Major League Pitching Coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. He's also a sought-after motivational speaker and co-author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. I'm sure in the last few minutes we have, I'm sure our listeners would strangle Audie and I if we didn't ask you about Showtime happening in California with the Angels. Um, what's your assessment? Can... A guy actually pitch and bat, play the field, play the play the field at in all between. star levels. Yeah, at all star levels. Can this go on, or what's your thoughts? Or is about, last night more indicative of the real Shohei Otani? Yeah, what 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 do you think's going to happen for the long run? Is it possible to do? I, I think. Well, when you say from an all star level, first of all, when when they pick the all star team, it's going to be very difficult. First of all, for him to get like five hundred, six hundred at bats. No, and also no. pitch is going to be almost incredibly impossible. You know, so when you're looking at picking the All Star, are you going to pick an All Star like at the All Star break? You know, you're picking players who who have 350, you know, plus at bats. Are you going to pick an, a, a guy who's got great numbers but but only has say 150 at bats at that point of the season? You know, pro- probably not. You know, he wouldn't fit in that All Star classification offensively, e- even though his offensive numbers are great. But he he would only be projected to be an everyday player, you know, pitch, playing in April and May, you know, not June and July, you know, if he had that many at bats. From a pitching standpoint, I think it's very possible for him to be an all star because the kind of stuff that he has really really projects. Well, let me ask you a question. So, what would the normal pitcher be doing in between starts that maybe Shohei cannot do because he's hitting or playing, or can he do both? Well, in an American league, he he would never touch a bat until you got to until you got to interleague play, you know. So an American league pitcher doesn't even think about putting a bat in his hand, you know, in, until you get until you start closing in on maybe a week or so out where he's going to be pitching in an interleague game in a National League city where where a starting pitcher actually would pick up a bat in his hand, you know. The other thing I think that you have to look at is that that with the way the styles of hitting are today that when you have a big swing and miss with that kind of power and that kind of exit speed, when you have a big swing and miss, you're potentially putting a lot of pressure on your right shoulder. You know, so the fact that he hits left-handed and his right arm is exposed, that's a little bit concerning, and especially with swings and misses, you know, as you go through that and and you take a look at the amount of repetitions. And I don't think anybody has any idea because no one's really tracked the kind of swings that you have to take when you when you look at when you look at hitting off the tee, you're looking at flip drills, you're looking at batting practice, you know, and then you're looking at you know obviously you know pre game you know activity after after batting practice. A lot of hitters go back in the cage, you know, one last time before the game starts, you know, because they they like they like those extra swings. And I don't think anybody has any idea, you know, what that looks like when you project that over, you know, over say 
400 at-bats in the course of the season, you know, while you're still pitching. So, Rick, let me ask you one, maybe one last mm-hmm. question since we just have about two minutes left. Um, have you watched him, and what does, what does your – I mean, we know one of your areas of expertise is studying a pitcher's mechanics, release point, the biometrics mm-hmm. of the way they pitch. How does he look to you? Is, does he have a delivery that can, is repeatable that you've talked about, the point of release? How do you see – forget the outcome, forget how much his ball breaks. When you study his motion, is he here for the long run? Without question, without question. You know, just, just, looking, at, just looking at watching him pitch in the game, I haven't actually like looked at slow motion, high speed video of him, but just just watching him pitch in the game, he, he's got a great delivery without question. He's got great arm action. He's got great stuff. He's very fluid. He's athletic. I mean, everything about him is what you drool about over a pitcher without question. And stuff wise, you know, not only high end velocity, but the way that he pitches, you know, he's able to elevate the fastball, and he's able to, you know, and, and that that complements the elevated fastball complements his foot finger that goes below the strike zone. You know, so he, he's got the tools, the, the, the delivery, the pitches, the grips, so on down the line, the stuff to be a dominant pitcher without question. And he's got a great swing. He's got a great, you know, his hitting style. He made a big change from the time he left Japan all through spring training, if you notice. He used to have a high leg kick, and that now he just has a little bit of a – he just kind of lifts his foot up in the ground just a little bit. He really got away from the high leg kick in spring training. And so his, his swing is much more compact, you know, which means he's got a shorter swing. He's got less reaction time. Um, he, he's the real deal without question. There's no question about it. It's just a matter of whether you can balance that kind of volume of hitting and pitching throughout the season in order to maximize both. And that sounds like something that we'll be tracking over time. And when we, we have you back in just a few weeks on our Call to the Bullpen segment, and we have updates both on his outcomes, but also on his, is his motion staying the same or is, you know, kind of the wear and tear taking an effect? It'll be interesting to hear. So, Rick, we want to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, this has been our segment with Rick Peterson, former Major League pitching coach for the May- Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. He's also a sought-after motivational speaker. We encourage all of you to get his book, uh, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick, thank you for joining us this morning on Morton Moneyball. Awesome, guys. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah, so a lot of what he said, Adi, really, I mean, caught flight with me. Um, I found, I thought your question was extraordinarily interesting, which was, can you track this kind of eye movement or ability versus training it. And that's, you know, one... Assess it versus training it. Assess versus training it. And that's a big, big difference. I I think this this technology really is in its infancy. I mean, there's a real issue of generalizability. So you do something in a computer lab with lights and, and, and geometric figures, and you get better at that task. But does that really translate out to actually playing baseball better? And, of course, what you're talking about is what we all talk about a lot of the time, which is this idea of external validity. Is it valid for trying to predict the baseball way you're going to hit a baseball or pitch? So this has been the first hour of Wharton Moneyball. We have a great second hour to go. We have Ned Coletti joining us right after the break. So please come back and join us here on Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. 
some combination of myself, Adi, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey. Her every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And, of course, you can join the conversation. I'm sure many of you will like to join the conversation for our next guest, uh, Ned Coletti. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. For those of you that aren't big baseball fans, you're not talking, of course, Adi and I, as everybody knows, are. Ned Coletti is the former general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He held a wildly successful tenure from 2006 to 2014. Uh, Before the Dodgers, Ned was assistant GM of the San Francisco Giants after getting his start with the Cubs. And he's recently the author of a recently released book, The Big Chair, The Smooth Hops and Bad Bounces from the Inside World. Uh, Ned, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, along with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Good morning, everybody. Well, good morning, Ned. And first of all, um, we understand that you were up a little late with a, uh, there was a baseball game played last night in L.A. that you uh, spent a little bit of time on. So uh, thank you for joining us so early here on Morton Moneyball. Well, you're welcome. Uh, watched Dodgers-Padres last night, and uh, I couldn't help but think, be good to end this game here pretty soon. I'm getting up in about 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So a lot of people, uh, a lot of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball are not just analytics fans and statistics fans, but they're obviously huge sport fans and also people that are thinking, like, wouldn't it be great to follow your career path in some way? Could you talk to us about how you basically progressed through the ranks? Like, how does somebody even get an opportunity to be where you are now and where you've been in the game of baseball? Well, I've been one of those people that that took a circuitous route to the top and, and um, really had a, a lot of different people who kind of stood up for me and gave me opportunity. From Chicago, uh, I have a bachelor's degree. It was the first in my family ever to go to college. I uh, grew up in a remodeled garage, car garage, in uh, in Chicago. And uh, as I said, first in my family go to go to college. And I love sports. I realized early in my, my days that while I could play, and I played a lot, and I played on championship city t- championship type baseball teams and hockey teams, that my size, about 5'8", was going to probably be a detriment to my playing career. Got a degree in journalism, wrote sports for a while, actually lived in Philadelphia for a while and, and covered the Philadelphia Flyers, the Philadelphia Journal back at the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, that was a great time, actually, to be. Oh, yeah. but that was a great sports time in Philadelphia. Obviously, the Phillies were successful. The Flyers were big in the late 70s. Obviously, the Sixers were doing pretty well back then. The Eagles were went to the Super Bowl. So you were actually here during one of our, well, now, of course, we're the city of champions. But you were <laughs> here during our previous heyday. Yes, no doubt. And I had come from Chicago where I had never seen anybody win anything. And I thought, wow, what a city this is. And then the next year, the Final Four was held at the Spectrum. So you had an amazing Philadelphia period of time there. But my dad got sick when I got there. My dad died a young man, ended up with lung cancer. And I had a chance to come back to Chicago and get an entry-level job with the Cubs. My first boss was the great Philadelphia Philly GM, manager, Dallas Green. And oh. so he gave me my first, my first chance. Came back, helped my mom with my dad as my dad was, was in his final months and started adding to my baseball resume. Dallas, never territorial, gave me a chance to scout, develop players, negotiate contracts, on and on and on. And I did that for 11 years there. I went to the, uh, or 13 years, went to the Giants there as the assistant GM to Brian Sabian, who was still there, three world championships later, and uh, another trip to the series, and then was hired 
in mid-November of 2005 by the Dodgers as their general manager. So uh, about a 35, 36-year run, and uh, now I do television, and I teach at Pepperdine University. What, what do you teach? Yeah, what, what is the course that you teach? I teach three different classes there, uh, two at a time. I teach a class of sports and the media. I teach another class uh, every other semester on building an organization, a sports organization, how you build it from top to bottom. Then I teach a class called General Manager, which is really a leadership class on negotiation, culture building, organizational building, scouting, player development, uh, salary arbitration, player trades, free agency, and that we take the, the students through all the different levels and the thought process. A lot of it is negotiation, and we teach that early in the class, and then we kind of run that thread throughout the entire uh, semester. Are these MBA students, or are they undergraduates? These are undergrad, undergraduates. undergrad students, yeah. And so uh, and with a lot of great speakers, I had Kim Ng from Major League Baseball, one of the highest-ranking females in the history of the sport. A couple weeks ago, Nancy Patterson Flynn was the first female uh, trainer in Major League Baseball who we had hired a few years back, her and Sue Felsoni. So a lot of different people, people from the LRD, people from other general managers from other sports, uh, kind of a, a smattering of different different philosophies, but it's really the basis of of uh, how you lead a major league organization. Well, of course, if you ever want to come back to your roots, uh, Wharton has the Wharton Sports Business Initiative, and of course, it would be great to have you here at the Wharton School. So if you ever decide that you're done with L.A. and you want to come back to the City of Champions, please <laughs> please come back to, to uh, Philadelphia. But on a more serious note, I wanted to ask you another question now. So um, one of the things that Adi just pointed out to me during the break, although he broke our cardinal rule about talking about something during the break, which we're never supposed to do because our producer Matt Datt says, save it for the air. Um, none of the six teams currently predicted to win their division. Are that actu- would include the Dodgers. Right. Are, are, are actually leading their division right now. So how, as a general manager, putting on your former general manager's hat, and again, yep. we're talking here on Wharton Moneyball to Ned Coletti, a former GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, when in a season, I know we're only 15, 16 games in, but when in a season do you start to say, hmm, maybe we're not what we thought we were going to be? Well, I, I don't think you do that in April. I think April is really the month where you you kind of let your team settle in a little bit, especially the teams that played till November first. In the case of Houston and L.A., and I think you you can make a lot of mistakes if you're too early. Part of the success of the position is knowing when to do what. Timing is huge. I would wait till May. I would wait until you got people that settled in. Dodgers, in their case, have lost Justin Turner since the beginning of the season with a fractured wrist. So it's not a, a complete team right at this point. You've got to wait it out. You've got to wait it out. You've got to be patient. I look for presentation, and the Dodgers have won three straight. Their presentation is starting to get better. What do you mean by the presentation? Players. Yeah, what do you mean by I, that? I mean how they play, just how it looks. Are they crisp? Are they are they thinking? Are, are they making pitches but just maybe off a hair? Is is everybody running the bases the right way? You're getting secondary leads. Are you doing? To me, there were never any little things, but we know people say, "Well, secondary lead, lead, little thing, laying a bunt down, little thing, having a good cutoff and relay, a little thing." Never a little thing to me, but those things are they executing those in the proper fashion? If they are, and your record is 500 or a tick or two below, that's no big deal. If you've got, if you believe in your talent. Certainly, all those, all six of those teams, tremendous talent. 
So I think you got to wait it out, though, because the worst thing you can do is make a mistake early because you've evaluated it every day for the last six weeks of spring training and three weeks of regular season, and you think this is what it's going to be. If you had doubts going in immediately, yeah, maybe it would be time to do that. If you left your season a year ago a little doubtful that you were that good, maybe then you do it. But if you if you think you have a good club, you got to let it settle in a little bit. So one of the um, the thoughts uh, that are talked about about today's baseball is that there's a whole bunch of teams at the absolute top, and then there's a whole bunch in the just that are terrible, and there is just not that much competition like we that we might potentially want. But this somehow this season is is uh, putting the lie to that because there's a whole bunch of teams that we didn't think would be particularly competitive and are playing competitive. Is it is it going to straighten out? I mean, is this just the early season? As you say, April, the Phillies are not going to go anywhere. They're not supposed to go anywhere. Um, a whole bunch of teams are doing re- decently well. Ari- is Arizona for real? Um, what do you think? Of, can we say anything at this point? Well, I think some are. I think Arizona, you gotta you got to pay respect to Arizona, Colorado, here out in the West. You know, I don't know that Pittsburgh is going to continue uh, what they've been able to do. Pretty good start. The toughest thing to do is pitch. And you have to have enough pitching to last six months. Just to get to the playoffs, you've got to have that. And I don't know if these teams have that. You can have it for two weeks, for three weeks, for four weeks. You can have it periodically. But to really win, you're going you're gonna to need it for the six-month run. I think it's interesting. I think it's good for those fan bases because I agree with you. More and more, uh, it's something I had never seen. I've been a fan for decades. Teams that just kind of show up, and they lose what they lose because they want a high pick. They want to continue to draft high. That is new to me. Fortunately, it's nothing I ever had to go through and do. Um, But I think that there are some teams playing well right now, but there are some teams that are good teams that are off to great starts. Boston, that's a great team. Anaheim may not be quite as good as they played. Pittsburgh, I don't think, is as good as they've played. I think that they will come back down. Look at teams, if they can pitch and they're off to a successful start, they got a chance to keep it going. If you're surprised by the pitching, you may not be surprised later by the end result. So we're talking to Ned Coletti, former general manager of the Dodgers and author of a recently released book, The Big Chair, The Smooth Hops and Bad Bounces from the Inside World, here on Wharton Moneyball. And this is Eric Brado, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. If you have a question for Mr. Coletti, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. Uh, that's 1-844-942-7866. Let me ask you a question. Um, first, I want to ask you a question as a fan, and then I want to ask you a question as a GM. So the first is, can you just watch a game? Um, like, can you just sit there with a beer and a pretzel in the stands and just enjoy baseball? Or are you like, it's impossible to take the GM out of you and to take all the years of experience. Uh, that's, that's a great question. I think it's, it's still difficult for me not to watch every pitch in a strategic type of way. I think that'll take a while to get out of that. I don't know that I've watched a game like a fan for maybe 40 years. And so it's going to take a little while longer, but I, I do love it. I do watch a lot, uh, whether it's on TV or in person all over the place. But it's I always watch it kind of with a, I'll say analytical, but it doesn't necessarily mean statistical, an analytical strategic view. So let me let me also ask you a question. Then I, I do want to turn to what you've know seen, in, I, yeah, what, what we've seen in the role of analytics. You mentioned a few times, and it is a good transition to analytics. You've mentioned what you called the eyeball test. Like, what does it look like on the field? Their performance on the field. 
How much do you think the eyeball test will kind of never go away? I mean, as we, obviously, as you know, you've lived through the, I'll call it the pre-sabermetric period to the heavy sabermetric period. How much do you think is still unmeasured? How much do you think, you know what, you need to be there. You need to see, the, the scout needs to see the player. You need to watch the game and see how the team performs. Or can everything just be measured, digitized, and put into some massive database? Well, my philosophy is this. Any leader of any organization, doesn't matter if it's a sport, if it's a business, whatever it is, if you turn your back on information, shame on you. You have a better chance of failure than you do success if you refuse information. I think all information by, done by, by the right people is great information. And I think that you'll never see the, the eyeball test go away I think every team that you would, you, if you put a list together of the top ten, quote, analytical, unquote, teams in baseball, you will find they also want to know who is inside the uniform. How does that person think? How do they sacrifice? How do they prioritize? How do they play in different situations? It's not all going to be found on paper. A lot of it will. I started my career really doing almost uh, prehistoric analytics. We did them by hand. If you remember the great manager in Baltimore, Earl Weaver, he had a great coach, Jimmy Fry. Jimmy Fry was one of my first managers and a GM later. And Earl would keep in an index card in his pocket hitter-pitcher matchups, left-right, late, all these different things, how players did in different situations. Jimmy came to me when he came to manage the Cubs in 1984 and said, start to keep this for me. Look it up. Go back in box scores. Figure out play-by-play. So I did that for a long time. That is so prehistoric today compared to the way it goes. But it was a value that we had on how people performed, and you could see it on paper. But I could never get rid of the field aspect of it. I'll always use the analytics. I think it's probably 52-48 for me, field test versus the 48 analytics. The analytics to me are like the resume. They're like the P&L's chart. Not necessarily who the salesperson is, how they work, how they think. Because when you think about it, much of baseball, particularly we'll talk about, it's one-on-one. It's a pitcher and a hitter. There's 18 people playing the game at one time, but it really is one-on-one. And sometimes a number is not going to tell you the story. It'll tell you what's likely, but it's not going to tell you what's always predictable. So now this is uh, Adi Weiner, and one of my research interests have been in using analytics to assess fielding ability in baseball. Now that's, a, that's and the, the technology behind measuring fielding has changed over the years. It, it's, I know that Major League Baseball has access to data that, that uh, I don't have yet. I know it's coming, but we're getting slowly dr- sort of dribbling out. And one of the things that I think is intriguing is that how do you evaluate a fielder, what they bring to the, to the team, and how much is it worth to, to acquire them? How much would you pay for them? Um, and to me, there's always been a, a, a um, almost a, a, a confrontation between what the data says and what the eyeball test is saying. So as a general manager, did you ever have to kind of run up against these, these issues where the analysts were saying this is a terrible fielder or, or a great fielder or vice versa, and, and your scouts are saying something else? I think it happens all the time, especially with fielding. I think fielding is the one dimension of baseball that is still trying to really fine-tune the value system. Um, there's a lot of different things that, that fielding, uh, some stats measure greatly, and, and some 
Some don't necessarily tell you the whole story. I think, again, it goes back to the combination of the statistics and also watching somebody play, watching where, which way they're leaning in a certain direction when a pitch is being made, if they're leaning to the right or to the left, where their first step is, uh, how fast a certain runner is in a certain situation. All these different things go into the fielder's mind as the ball's coming their way, ground ball, for example. So I think that you can measure a lot of it. I, don't, I think you can measure your pitching and your hitting far cleaner and deeper than you can your fielding. And do you, do you pay for it? I mean, if you thought you, someone was, was truly a, an excellent fielder, is that something that has value? I think defense is maybe the most underrated necessity of all. Without defense, you have no chance. You'll be chasing that scoreboard forever. The outs are the clock. So if you're giving a team more clock, more outs, you're, you're, you're not going to be successful. Pitching is at such a premium. You now have pitchers that they're trying to get 15 outs from, five innings. So if, you gotta get, if, if that's really what they're capable of, and they have got to get now 17 or 18, but you're still left with 12 because you've only really gotten 15, right. you know, you're, you're, you're making the game much tougher than it is. Well, you, tough enough. You just mentioned one question, and Adi and I have had. We actually, I think Adi and I are on the same side of this. Um, since outs are your friend uh, for a defensive point of view, does it ever? I just want to know how you've thought about this over the years. Does it ever make sense to bunt, sacrifice an out? I think it does late in games to play for one run. I think if your game is a one-run game and it's in the later stages of the game, I think it makes sense to sacrifice the out. To get the ninety feet. Yeah, there are a few there are a few possibilities, bottom of the ninth, bottom of the eighth, yeah, where, that, where that the win probability the increases. Time, it is a waste of an out. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a question. How much when you think of analytics now, and then I after we speak about analytics for a few minutes, I want to transition to your book and what's in it and what you wanted people to learn from your book. But what let's think about the different roles that a GM plays on a team. And well first let me ask you that question. How much role what maybe a lot of us here don't and not just Adi and myself, but also our listeners here on Morton Moneyball do you only deal with the on-field side? Do you deal with, I assume, contracts on-field? Do you also have a role on the business side? What is the overall general role of a GM? And then I want to ask you, what's the role of analytics in each of those parts? Well, it's, um, it depends, I think, on the organization. When I was coming up in the game, I had two great bosses. I had Dallas Green, who I mentioned before, and a football executive named Jim Finks. Minnesota Vikings, great GM, uh, Hall of Fame, uh, NFLer, executive, ran the Chicago Bears. He came to the Cubs for about 14 months. And I was on the baseball side, and he would say, come with me. We're going to go to the business side today. We're going to go to a sponsorship meeting. We're going to go to a ticket meeting. We're going to teach you both sides of the business because both sides need to interact. When you think about one side, the business side, they're in charge of revenue. They may spend months. Somebody may spend months trying to get a $3 million client in the house. And a minute later, the baseball side or the talent side in any sport may spend the $3 million on the 25th player. So you've got this, this dynamic that can, be, that can be tested from time to time. So I think the good organizations do spend time on both sides of the house. It's a respectful group. Both sides need each other. So I think some organizations, probably the best ones, do spend time on both sides of the house. I think the uh, relationship between a GM who has information and the business side is of great value, especially those on the business side who communicate 
with your clientele who communicate with your season ticket holders, ticket buyers, sponsors. Let them see what they can see. Let them know what they can know. I think it's very important to the to the livelihood and, and the, really the lifeblood of an organization. So let's imagine that analytics, and maybe you'll correct me, but I, I could think of three major areas that analytics could play a role in a team, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about how far we've come. So one could be for drafting and assessing talent. That's certainly one. One could be on field, like as you just mentioned, shifting, you know, shifting or bunting late in the game because it maximizes the win Match probability. Ups, this is awesome. Yeah, and the other would be maybe training in the off season and stuff. Which of the three do you think has come the farthest, and which do you think there's still more to grow? Well, I do think the defensive one is is the most reliable one. The shifting, uh, not not necessarily defense. How good a player is? I said a minute ago, it really takes a combination. But I have been very impressed by the shifting. Shifting in baseball has changed the game. Um, I think it's it's amazing to me how good it has become and how difficult it's become. If you're a certain type of hitter, even if you're a 300 hitter, if you if you're repetitive with your approach, especially against certain pitches. Well, let me give you an example just to interrupt for one second. I was at the Phillies game against the Reds the other day, and they shifted on Joey Votto. I think most of us consider a real major league hitter. Yep. He hit three balls that were outs, and I'm telling you, they're hits. I mean, if they didn't shift, oh, absolutely. those are hits. Yep. Those are hits. Will there yep. be a change? Do you think there'll be a change in the way the hitters approach the game now that the shift is so sort of bred into the way it's being played at the major league level? I mean, will will you actually have hitters coached and learning to hit to all fields and not to get into these habits? I think you'll, you'll see it as time goes on. I think... Um, I think there, there's a bit of ego involved. I, I was blessed to know Lou Boudreau, Hall of Fame manager, young manager of the Cleveland Indians, who allegedly put on the first shift in baseball on Ted Williams. Yep, yep. And he told me that they were going into Boston, Cleveland was going into Boston, and they, he had dinner with his coaching staff, and on a cocktail napkin, Lou wrote out, the third baseman should be playing over here, way on the other side of the field, when, when Ted comes to the plate. And Ted came to the plate, they shifted, and Ted looked at Boudreaux and, and said something you can't say on radio even today and refused to hit the ball the other way. And I think some of that still lives because you do see opportunity. Hey, learn how to bunt. Bunt the ball down the third baseline. You got a single. Or slap it down the third baseline. You'll end up getting a double. But I think it takes a a hitter of patience and a hitter whose ego is – is unaffected by trying to do something that the defense allows you to have. Because in the long run, this has got to be a good opportunity. I mean, you've got to train the, the defenses away from the shifts to get your field back just by slapping the ball or bunting. I mean, it's it seems that a young player should have to master these skills in a way that they wouldn't, and I wonder whether the teams are trying to encourage that. Well, I think they should. I don't know if they are or they're not. I'm not in on everybody's player development scheme, but I think it's imperative to, to figure that out. Um, again, you know, you're, they're giving you a, a short, certain portion of the field that they're not staying in. And it's not a portion of the field that's 300 feet away from the plate. It's like 10 feet away from the plate. So, and so, you know, use it. 
so that was changes. So that was the on-field side. How about the assessing something that a GM, obviously, you've done made a lot of great trades. You're known as one of the great traders, if you'd like, uh, in the history of baseball. How did you use analytics to assess talent or the draft or who to trade for whom? Did that play a role in how you were thinking about what fair value is? Analytics would give me a, uh, a great look, a great head start into a trend, into somebody who is maybe reaching an apex of performance or had seen their best days and was coming down the other side of the hill. That I use it a lot for. I use it a lot for injuries. I use it a lot when you can do an, an analytical report on a pitcher's release point. A release point, velocity, things like that can tell you a lot about where somebody is and where they may be going, be it good, be it bad. Where I think it becomes tricky is in the draft. When you think about drafting players and you think about the competition level, because it's not always apples versus apples. It's not like the big leagues where everybody has got a very elevated ability to play. And so it's almost like talents playing against like talents for measurable results that make sense. When you have uh, a big-time division program, you know, one of the best baseball teams in the country collegiately playing against a lesser team, maybe not even in the same division if it's an exhibition game, that's an unfair combination of talent. When you watch high school players, unless you're in a tournament, unless you're in a, one of those you know, high-level uh, showcases, it's tough to watch a high school game with a dominant pitcher and, and really see everything that dominant pitcher is going to be able to do if the team is afraid of hitting against them, the team is afraid of competing against them. We all know how that goes. you got some kid throwing 90 miles an hour at 18 years old. Most of the kids that are standing in there want no piece of that. So I think when you draft and you scout, you have to take it for, with less value. You have to put the proper value on the performance, and most of that I think would be the eye tests. I think the other ways, analytics is at least, at least a door opener, an introduction into who you like, who you don't like. It's almost like the resume to a high-level executive in a, in a major Fortune 500 company. It's the resume and the, and the performance sheet that will get the CEO or the president interested in hiring an executive. To me, it's like the resume. Before we turn to your book, I have one last question. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, and I'll stay on only on the positive side. What do you consider the greatest trade you made while you were a GM? And did you kind of know that, I mean, or you were like, it's still uncertain. What do you consider the greatest deal you ever made during your career as either an assistant GM or as a GM? Um, tough, tough for me to you know, it sounds boastful when you ask me like that. But. Well, I'm sorry. I'm asking you to boast a little bit. But I'm asking you it's in retrospect. I mean, it's not like you're saying, I'm so brilliant, every trade I made was great. I'm saying, looking back, which trade are you most proud of? And for what reason are you most proud of it? Well, I think the trade that when we brought Manny Ramirez and the Red Sox and the trading deadline in 08, nobody expected us to do that. Theo Epstein and I had, had talked many times, known each other for a long time up until that move, and obviously still friends since. Um, Trade came about the morning of the 31st, and we traded a couple prospects to Pittsburgh. Theo traded a couple prospects to Pittsburgh. Theo got Jason Bay. We got Manny Ramirez and $7.5 million to pay the salary of Manny Ramirez. We were in an ownership period of time back then that uh, we were we were prone to, to get people to pay for the players we acquired, really kind of an astute, astute approach. 
That trade changed our culture, changed our team. We had a good young team. We had a young Matt Kemp, a young Russell Martin, James Loney, Chad Billingsley, Jonathan Broxton. Clayton was starting to, to, to show up a little bit at the, at the big league level. And Manny taught those kids how to win. And we went to the LCS back-to-back years. Both times got beat by Philly. Uh, great teams in Philly. And, Sorry uh, about that. But that, yeah, that was that was tough. But you know, they they kind of Manny taught us a lot about winning. When we played the Phillies, we learned a lot about the combination of grace and grit when you win, because that was very, that was probably the heyday of that franchise after a hundred and some years. But probably that trade, another trade that garnered a lot of attention and was really looked upon as a as a poor business decision for the Dodgers because it was a snapshot. The full view of the Adrian Gonzalez deal, though, turned out to be brilliant for the L.A. Dodgers. We were we were coming out of the bankruptcy. We were coming out of new ownership. Needed to make a statement. Had lost some market share. Had lost belief in the market. And we went and acquired uh, Adrian Gonzalez and Josh Beckett, Carl Crawford, and Nick Puno, and $250 million in late August of 2012. Took the world of baseball by storm. The fan bases were, like, shocked that we did this. But it brought us back in the market. The fans knew Guggenheim Sports Partners were real. Adrian Gonzalez was a star player for us for a number of years, and it also helped the team get take a three billion dollar, three billion dollar TV offer to do local cable and turned it into an eight point three five billion dollar deal. Did that deal just do that to make the TV thing escalate almost three times? No, not on its own but it certainly helped push it in that direction. So from a business sense, massive deal. From a talent sense, we added one of the best first basemen in the league at that time, or in the game at that time. We got him from the American League. We had seen him enough out of San Diego, killing us down there all the time. Plus being a Mexican-American heritage uh, in, in our fan base, a tremendous Mexican fan base here, Latin fan base uh, it proved to be a winner across the board. Well, this is great, by the way, because as, as my producer, Matt Datz, just typed me on the screen, this is Wharton Business Radio. So you've talked about the intersection between sports, you analytics, and business. Often. And so this I is my market. Yeah. yeah, no, this is extremely but that's valuable. That's interesting. I think, I think that really plays, though, in Los Angeles, where you can actually, the the return on an investment and some stars is, is much greater because of those uh, uh, side deals or these important central deals with, with cable media. So well, you uh, got to think about yeah. all sorts of different things when you're making a deal sometimes. Yeah, so Ned, maybe just... just the baseball cards that are changing hands. That's true. So let me just ask you in the last few minutes we have, can you tell us about your book, The Big Chair, uh, The Smooth Hops and Bad Bounces from the Inside World? What, what's in the book, and what would you like everyone to know about it? Well, it, it, I kind of wrote it by accident. I didn't write it to write a book or sell a book. I wrote a book to really kind of get a lot of things out of my mind and almost in a cathartic way when I left the GM job. I had so many things I had seen, people I had met, experience that I had encountered, including starting how I grew up and, and the, the humbleness of, of my, my early years. And I felt like I wanted to put that on paper. Again, not for anybody else's edification. It didn't matter to me if anybody ever saw it or not. I needed to write it down. It's like people who keep diaries or write journals. And I did that, and I, I took myself through my career, through the path, through the thought process of making a deal. Like the Manny deal is in there in great detail. Signing Greg Maddox or not signing Greg Maddox, which we, as the Cubs, lost Greg Maddox back in the early 90s. That negotiation, point by point, conversation by conversation, 
is in there. I wanted to show the x-ray. You've got fantasy sports galore. Everybody runs a fantasy team. They may not even like the sport, but they're going to be involved in a fantasy team. That's a GM job. I try to show the x-ray of what it's like to do that. And let's face it, any business, you know, you're, you're a very business-oriented place there. Business comes to many times an ethical decision. How do you get to that decision, and do you go over the line? Do you go over the line of being ethically correct when your competition, you know inside out, will go over that line? Do you? And so it's a lot of the philosophy, a lot of the struggles, challenges, successes, thought process. It's an x-ray into the job. And there's some funny stuff in there, too. It's all just not clinical. You know, I had a chance to have dinner with Frank Sinatra. And I was working for the Giants at the time, and I had great dinner with Mr. Sinatra, and he was telling me stories on Tommy Lasorda, who's a great Dodger manager. And years later, you know, Tommy had to hear him from me, and he was shocked by what he heard. And it's hysterical exchanges between me and one of my dear Italian friends, Lasorda, on one of the great iconic singers and entertainers in American music history, Frank Sinatra. So there's a few jokes in there, too. There's a few lighthearted things, a little bit of some memoir, a walk through my early days. It's kind of a tip of the cap to my family, uh, my my parents and my buddies that I grew up with. Well, Mr. Clay, we want to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball this morning, especially after a late Dodger win, though. We, I know you're happy about that last night. So we've been talking to Ned Coletti, former GM of the Dodgers. Uh, also, his we recommend to all our fans to get his new book, The Big Chair, The Smooth Hops and Bad Bounces from the Inside World. Uh, Ned, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. It has been a pleasure. Anytime you want to talk, let me know. I love the conversation with all you All right. Guys. Terrific. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go, including our famous over-under segment. So please join us here on Wharton Moneyball right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Brado. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner, and we've just gotten off the phone with Ned Coletti, former GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers, with a great conversation. And, of course, that music this morning, which has got to get everybody excited, was brought to us by our original sound engineer and our associate producer, Dion Simkin. So, Dion, thanks for bringing us back here to the exciting last quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. So, Adi, we've been talking for baseball for really an hour because we had Rick Peterson in our Call to the Bullpen segment, then Ned Coletti, who gave the insights on the role of analytics in the GM role. Um, you said before the show that you had a baseball puzzle for I do. me. I so do. Uh, I've been waiting for it. I've been excited the first hour and a half of the show. So let's hear about I, this I'm puzzle. I'm not the originator of the puzzle. I heard it on uh, a podcast, uh, Effectively Wild. That's a, uh, It's a daily show. covers an hour, at least an hour worth of baseball. It's with Ben Lindbergh um, and uh, his cohort, Jeff Sullivan. And Ben, was these guys were uh, uh, wrote the book on... Uh, on they they were the guys who took that team out and um, out in California and these analytic a- analysts took over an independent league and s- ah. s- show what they could do. It's very interesting. But they have this. Uh, they, it's it's published by Fangraphs or at least produced by Fangraphs. But one of the listeners had a puzzle which they then dissected on the air, and I decided to do some research into it. So the puzzle was this: Imagine for whatever odd reason there's a pitcher available um, to play. But he has very odd habits and conditions and and and, uh, and and performance characteristics. So on the good side, he is uh, he, he can strike out in three pitches, any anyone. So he's essentially flawless. So you can. You I just add, want to understand. You're saying there's a with certainty with certainty he, he will he can strike out three pitches 
a- anyone. That's it. Okay. So, yeah, it's fantastic, right? But the, fantastic. the condition is he will only play for one inning and only every other game. And here's the, the kicker, only in the third inning. Okay. All right. So you have this player, and they, they labeled so him. So I just want to repeat Jones. for everybody here. Name. So just to repeat here, um, he'll only play every other game in the third inning, and he can only play for one inning. That's so all he but, needs. But when he plays, it's he strikes out. It's nine pitches, and the inning's over. That's it. Okay. Okay. So the question is, these are all these peculiar conditions, and the question is, how much value does this player have, and what would you do to get them? And so it's a, and really really interested in your thought process is sort of thinking about what kind of what kind of utility does this player have now think about it in terms I, I, of the it's third inning so it's like an odd place to put a pitcher in it means you're what are you going to do with your starter uh, there 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 are obviously issues so let me hear what you have to say all right so let me start with the approximate math and this might be the wrong way to think about it but here's I'll, and I'm going to use a specific number which is sort of accurate but there's a reason because it's divisible by nine so let's imagine the average runs per game scored by a team is roughly four and a half. So now you take one ninth of that, and this guy has prevented half a run. So now, if all else equal, if everybody else, let's forget that someone's got to pitch for two innings and I got to pitch someone for six innings, he has now l- limited, reduced the expected number of runs from the other team from four and a half to four with certainty. Okay, on the expected, on yeah, the on expectation the expe- side, on the yeah. expectation right. side, and so my guess is, so that's one calculation I would do. The second calculation I would do is, how is he changing the win probability? So let's imagine that I'm. Let's imagine part of it. The only thought I have is, you're, since he's reducing by half a run, he's got to be raising the win probability of a team. Probably my my first gut, which was way too high, is by ten percent. I'm sure it's considerably lower than that. And so I would say that that's the way I would think about valuing him is in the number of runs that he is reducing from the other team. I would then try to translate that into a win probability and then say, here's his expected win shares, given he can pitch so every can other day. So can you turn day. it into some sort of forecasted war? Um, well, let's. Uh, so I'm going to guess the following. I'm guessing. I'm going to say he's going he's gonna to be worth 5% more than the average player in the game he plays. He can play 80 games a year, so somewhere around 4 or 5 Okay, so so you four uh, f- four okay four is a good a good war value. It, uh, so, by the so way, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm anywhere close. I'm just criti- telling you the math I did. Critically, you consider this player extremely valuable. A four oh, a four pitcher is higher than any reliever. Okay, I was not aware of the general scaling a, a, of how a, a war works. So so what was interesting? So I listened to their debate, and they essentially thought it was not worth it. And what your your numbers are. He's extremely valuable. And because I think what's interesting is you, you, you didn't fall into what I think was the trap of, of thinking that the third inning is less important than the eighth inning. Because it's not. <laughs> well, you've told me this. Yes, I've been I, listening right, yeah, to you yeah. for four years right. here on Morton Moneyball where you've said you don't understand why in certain high-leverage situations, like, you know, you've always told me if it's, you know, you'd bring in your closer. I would bring if my closer. If it's bases loaded, fifth inning, and the expected runs right. from the other team can be reduced, you would bring them in. I would actually bring in the, the relievers in the beginning of the game, the very first inning, because that's when you place, face with, with uh, probability 100% the best hitters. And so one of the problems about the, uh, you want to use your, your best hitters your best pitchers to face the best pitcher so actually i didn't i went in and did took 16 years of data and i knocked out the third inning and replaced it with zero so So i just want to understand the counterfactual if every game 
was exactly the same as it was. So we're not going to talk right. about how it could have changed because of the third inning That's being right. knocked I, I out. No, no, no. I just, yeah. no, no. I'm just, I, I'm just yeah. trying to, for our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball, just want to make sure we're all clear on what the counterfactual is. So let's imagine you're the the home team. This guy's on your team. Whatever number of runs the other team scored, you put a zero there instead of what they did, and then you said, what's the outcome of the That's game? That's right. Okay, And so I did that, and so a, a whole number of games t- result in ties, and so I just tossed it up at 50% after that. Okay, that's uh, So fair. a game you would have lost, you now have uh, you now brought oh, wait, it so to you're, the uh, tie. Let me tell you why you're getting me nervous about my number. Let me say why I'm getting nervous, but maybe you I'll stay with be. it. Okay, but let me say why I'm getting a little nervous, because you've done something I should, I should have done, which I didn't, at least under your simulation. Games that I was going to win anyway, yeah, you don't, I have no impact, no impact. on those games because, right. you know, I'm already won. I just win by more. So that's getting me a little nervous, but keep going. Right. This is, so, by the way, this is a fantastic it's, it's discussion. So, and then, there's, then there are games for which uh, a third inning was a big inning, in which case you won them when you took it out. So it's, it's actually far more games turn, result into ties by knocking out the third, the third inning. But what's interesting is, is that it's just under 4% uh, of the so what I actually I tabulated with a half I gave a half a game to one that ended in a tie and a full game for one that that you would have reversed it. Yep. So it actually results in approximately if you use the player every day, not every other day, every day about six more wins, and so you just divide that two, and it's about three more wins, and that's above. So I'm average. not so bad. No, not at I, all. I'm doing well today. So, and that's actually above average. So, because that's assuming you're just replacing the pitcher who pitched in the third inning, and he's cons- at least an average. In fact, he might even be slightly better than average pitcher. So, if you use the WAR adjustment, which is wins above replacement, that would probably add on another win on top of that, and that puts you right exactly in the ballpark. But the point that that, that and you and I immediately agree on this, and, and it I, the, the the back of the envelope calculation that I did was a very, much simpler one. It's about a half a run per inning. So that's 80 games. That's 40 runs. There's a nice rule of thumb that 10 runs is is uh, one win. I didn't know that. So, so no, but there what, you go. But what's great? What's great about what you just said? And this is why we're statisticians and we think alike. I was just trying to translate in my own mind, and I just eyeballed it. I didn't know that stat of yours, which would have helped me. Sure. I just try and say, how much does runs change to wins? That's and, it. And that's the conversion I just didn't know, and now you've told me a stat so, I will remember So what was forever. interesting was is that it wasn't actually four wins. It was three um, and that you might just talk up to randoms. I did use 16 years of data. So maybe there is something about the third inning. Um, I'm not necessarily, obviously there's, 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 you have to divide up at the end. I also did it only with the visitors because you can't deal it with, do it with the home team because they don't bat in the ninth in a lot of questions. Right. And if it's a tie, they'd have not only the, the, the ninth, they'd have a ninth to take a lead. And then after that, so I just did it with the visitors, which seemed to be a little easier to deal with. Let me ask you both as a fan of baseball and as a statistician, let's imagine someone said, well, Professor Weiner is making all kinds of assumptions here. Like, for example, well, if they hadn't scored in the third, maybe their strategy would have changed. But we talk about main effects and second-order effects. Do you think any criticism of this simple simulation that you did or counterfactual, is it a second-order effect or third-order effect or first-order effect? Okay, like so how, how valid would that criticism be? Uh, I would say it's, a, it's not more than a second-order and probably a third-order effect because there are lineup implications. I mean, so that would, that's something I didn't address. I mean, if you knock out the third inning completely and turn them into nine pitches, uh, nine pitches it's, there's, there's a ripple effect that I'm not really taking into account. But I don't think that. I think that averages out. And particularly, I'm not trying to forecast the outcome of any given game. I'm trying to forecast the expected number over the season. But the point is, is that it's, uh, it's about four wins above replacement, maybe even four and a half. And that's worth, um, that's certainly worth 
more than any reliever playing today. And uh, that has to do with the fact that you're getting tremendous amount of value. 81 games at, at, at one scoreless inning is terrific. And I think for the public, and I think one of the things is that I think that the guys at the po- podcast, they don't really see the value of a third inning closer, if you will. And I really do, because you're preventing those five-run innings, which do happen. So just one comment for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. And if you want to join the conversation, you can call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Just to make one clarifying point, when I was referring to a first versus second order effect, what I was referring to is we're translating this to runs per game. But one could say, well, if they didn't score in the third, they might change their lineup here. And when I say a second order effect, we're talking about maybe it'll have an effect. And maybe it changes the three to 2.8, but it's not changing it from three to zero. It's right. just, where is the real variation and action coming from? Uh, what's interesting also about the third inning, now that you brought this up, could one say, look, if they had gone through the lineup pretty well in the first two innings, the third inning is the bottom of the lineup. So would you play any role in saying, well, this pitcher's facing the bottom of the lineup. I would rather, I mean, if, how much would you change your calculation if you allowed me to pick the inning and said, I get to face the three, four, five hitters instead well, of where it happens because to be. The, the, uh, for the guys in Effectively Wild, they were really concerned about the impact it has on the starting rotation. The I fact see. That you, and that, that the third inning really messes up that whole system. I actually think I underplay that. That Remember, there's, he's only every other day, so I think it's a great idea to start with when you're set up men in the first two innings. I think I looked at this some data some time ago. Uh, the first inning produces the most runs um, by far uh, on average compared to the other innings, and that's because you we always start with the top of the lineup, and they're the best hitters. It drops uh, precipitously at the second. Um, it starts to turn around, I think, by, certainly by the fourth. It's, it's, it's back at the top again. and kind of evens out. The third inning usually is a split between the, um, the, uh, the bottom and the top of the order for most, for most times That through. would make sense. What was interesting, if I recall, in the National League, the third inning is a dead zone, and the American League it isn't. And we all know why. The pitcher almost Absolutely. always bats in the third inning, and the third inning is – and that pitcher is an out – I mean, and it's just it's it's just an out sitting there. So that third inning is almost always a two out inning, as opposed to a three out inning, and that's why it has a, a, a in the National League it's a disaster. Well, Adi, first of all, thank you for the puzzle. It's interesting, not just because I did well on it, but yeah. it's more so you did well on both puzzles. I know, today, but, but but I like <laughs> no, but what I like about it is it's what I hope we we you know we bring to our listeners here on Morton Moneyball is it's a way of thinking about problems. It's also something you've taught me something I'll never forget is it's number of appearances times rate. Everything is always about that. And it's breaking down problems into their parts that can be assessed empirically. It's You notice that interest company number? Oh, it's six. No. I started to think, all right, so how many runs is it? How is that going to affect the win share? How is that going to affect it times 80 games? It's that systematic approach that I think it's great for our listeners to hear. So thanks for bringing that to the show today. So it's 10 minutes left in our show here and we know what that means here on more Moneyball, it means time for our over-under segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's over-under. So thanks for that sound clip, Dion, for our over-under. So uh, normally this is when Cade Massey, our, one of our co-hosts, throws it to me. So I'll just throw it to myself. So Eric, why don't you run the over-under segment today? Excellent, so, Eric. Great idea. Go I ahead. have run it uh, in your absence. That's true. That's true. I could run it today if you like. Uh, we, we, we both have the same list in <laughs> right. front of us. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, for producing us this list. Since we've been so much on baseball, I'm going to start with baseball from this list. And it was actually on my list of things to talk about. So let's talk about the Red Sox. 
unfortunately. They're 14-2 and two right now, and here's the over-under for our fans. So their predicted number of wins before the season was 91.5. They're now at 14-2, and two, over-under 96.5. So what do you think, Adi? Over-under. No, just to do a little math, they've played 16 games. Let's imagine that at a 90-win pace, we, the math is easy. They would they be 9-7. 9-7 yeah, and seven. times 10 is 90-70. Yeah. So roughly they should have been. They're five wins So, so you're asking me to decide whether or not the Red Sox are a different team than we predictively forecasted. So if it would be 90, if you just took the extra wins that they have, which is about four, and four, just tacked five. it on, tacked four, it on to their forecast, you're looking at about 96 that's why our producer Matt that's picked ninety six and a half, and Matt's been listening. He's, yeah. been listening. He's been listening to our show because he knows if it was stationary, if they were the, yeah. still the same team, they just happen to be five over ninety one and a half plus five is ninety six right. and a half. It's not a randomly selected it's number. It's interesting, by the way. This this really does. Uh, there's a, there's something called the sm- the law of small numbers, which isn't really a law. It's a, it's actually a fallacy that most people believe that the any early imbalance is actually balanced off in the future by some by uh, occurrences that go against what. Just so seen. just to be clear, maybe just let's call it this way. Your observed play is your true play plus error. They happen to have gotten five positive residuals right. in their face. So it has to counterbalance out in the other 146 right. games. And you're like, actually, no. It doesn't. So most people believe that uh, the, law of lar- the law of large numbers actually applies to small numbers. And so if you expect a certain rate, so for example, if you tossed a coin um, 50 times and you got more heads than tails, and then in the next 50, you're going to get more t- tails than heads in order to balance it out. That, of course, is, is nonsense. I always By tell the definition my, of the word in Independence. Independence. But I always ask the question, particularly when I when I pose this with coins or cards, I said, or dice, I say to my, my students, where does the dice and the hold that information about what it's done? Ah, I like that way of framing <laughs> so, it. Right? But by the way, I'm sure many of our listeners, and I don't know that everyone here is listening on their in their car. Maybe they are, maybe some on their home internet uh, serious account. They're about to drive off the road. They're like, when the friggin' is Adi Weiner going to answer the question above or below 96 and a half? I know Dion Simpkins is ready to cut off your microphone. What's the answer? Unfortunately, I have to admit it's going to be over. Over? I think they look terrific. I'm going under. I'm going under. Well, you're making the good base bet. I'm going under. I'm going under 96 and a half, and Matt hopefully will uh, keep that. Let's take another team. Let's take the Mets. So would you apply the same logic? So, well, they're 12 and 4. Their prediction was 81, so a 500 team. So that would mean they should be 8-8. Eight and eight. They're four above that. Matt picked 84.5. Not, not a bad prediction. The problem with the Mets is that there's a huge uncertainty about their staff and the injuries, and which we've seen that in the past. So I like to root for the Mets. I'm going to go over there, too. All right, you're going over. I'm going over as well. And this one, I'm going over as well. Uh, let's talk about, let's now actually move now to the NBA. Uh, there's lots of different possible ones that are listed here. Uh, let's start by, let's talk about the Cavaliers, okay? The first one I have here is two and a half series won by the Cavs. So for them to win three series, they have to go to the finals. Are you at all basingly updating, given that the Cavs lost game one at home to the Pacers and only scored 80 points in that game. How much is that moving you well, okay. off your prediction of the Cavs in the finals? The Cavs are very difficult for, for me because the stat... So so ELO and those who look at the season and really are down on the Cavs. Down on the Cavs. Yet Vegas and the public is super high on the Cavs, mostly because of LeBron, what he can do. And the idea has been, and I listened to it, I listened to some, some guys talk about this, is that there's the defensive LeBron that you, LeBron that you only see in the playoffs. Right. 
so you, there was two things going to go square head, head against each other. I did not think that the opening game was was particularly um, persuasive of the the good LeBron or the good Cavs. So Although I'm, he did have a triple-double, by the way. He did, yes, but they still lost, and they lost badly. And he scored eight, and the team scored 80. Yeah. 80. 80, which is... 80. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Matter of fact, 80. It's a Toronto, game. I watched it on the... I was a flying back last night. I think Toronto had 80 at the half, or 76, or some yeah. number like that. So what, what, what's your answer? Over and above... To, how... You get to tick the Cavs, make the finals, not even win the finals, make the finals or not, where are you? Don't make the finals. I'm going to stay with the Cavs, and I'm going to say you the are. Cavs are okay. still. We actually have some discord. Yeah, you got to beat them. You got to beat, beat them four times. I'm going to make you go first on this next one. All right, but we only have one minute left. The 30 seconds <laughs> left here. I'll just take the Yankees and the Red Sox four and a half games apart at the end of the year. I'm going to go under. I think it'll still be a close race. I will agree. All right. Well, that's been our two hours of here on Wharton Moneyball today. We've had a great show. I want to thank my co-host, Adi Weiner, professor of statistics here at the Wharton School. Great to to be here today. Yeah, it's great to have you here, Adi. I want to thank our two guests, Rick Peterson, our call to the bullpen segment. I want to thank Ned Coletti for getting up early for him, especially given the Dodgers last night. I want to thank our producer, Matt Datz, and our sound engineer and associate producer, Dion Simpkins. And just remember, some combination of myself, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live. Live 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. You can also listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Between now and next week, go Sixers, go Flyers. Hope you've enjoyed this segment of Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.